Good morning, church. I, uh, obviously, the fill-in today, so that's fun. Uh, doing things a little bit differently this Sunday, since Steve, Stim, Stim, Steve and Tim are both out sick. Uh, we want to make sure that everyone else stays healthy at home uh, this Christmas, so we're trying to give them as much time as possible to recover, so that, Lord willing, we can all come together again this Friday for the Christmas Eve service. So I'm here to fill in for our time in the Word. And uh, for those of you tuning in who don't know me, my name is Nate Garrison. I am a small group leader here, and I'm also currently studying to be a pastor at Karen University. And uh, I just want to take a minute, uh, first while we're here, just to pray for Steve and Tim and uh, anyone else who might be feeling a little, a little sick this season today. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to just thank you for the um, various ways you let us gather together that... Uh, in times like this, when it doesn't seem appropriate to be together in person, we can be still together in spirit and still um, being fed by the word and learning from you and just have time together in prayer for those of us who are who are sick and weary that they can um, receive healing and that we can be back together and united in person soon. In your son's holy name, I pray these things. Amen. So, uh, when Tim originally called me this morning, or not this morning, earlier this week, uh, it was a little bit different from where we're at now. Um, I was told there would be a testimony and a uh, children's singing time, and so I'd have to allot some time for all of those things. Um, And then we're here today, and I have the next, what is church normally done at 10.15, so we got the next, like, 45, 50 minutes together. Um... I promise I will not be going for 50 minutes today. But uh, the other thing that he had kind of mentioned to me, because it was a little bit short notice, was that I didn't have to put something together Christmas-related. If I had a sermon that was pretty much ready to go, um, that would work fine, that we just needed to be able to to fellowship in the Word together. Um, I could have done that, because I do have some sermons that I've I've worked on before, and that would have worked for today. But I couldn't help feeling like I would be a hypocrite for criticizing uh, a few weeks ago that we didn't do any Christmas songs in December, and then I myself not speak about something Christmas-related when I have the opportunity to preach on Sunday. So I took this opportunity to uh, study some scriptures that I haven't previously taken um, into full consideration for at least sermon prepping. And, uh, and we have here today, what, uh, what are my results? Um, so I'm going to be in a very familiar passage for this time of year. We're going to be in Isaiah 9. Uh, Jared kind of mentioned that. Um, so I'm just going to read through the text. Uh, if you have your Bibles near you at home, you can feel free to grab those. And we'll be in Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. Um, and I will be reading from the uh, Christian Standard Bible, or CSB. So let's read the word together. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. And as they rejoice when dividing spoils, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire, For a child will be born for us, and a son will be given to us, 
and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So uh, this is a very typical passage during the Christmas season. Um, Mainly, I think, because it looks really good if you have it framed on your wall or if you put it on your Christmas card. It works really well for that. Um, But as I've been as I've been thinking about this for the the past few weeks, uh, I don't think I've heard anyone talk about this this one concept that just kept popping back into my mind. So I'm going to reread verse six because there's something in there that I think I think we're so used to by the the regularity of of Christmas and the verses we're used to finding that it's almost kind of hidden itself. So verse six again: For a child will be born for us and a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, the, the key to understanding the, the hidden piece here is that this uh, writing from Isaiah is before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. So it's, he's prophesying that they're going to be destroyed because they've They've been in sin, and they're going to be taken off into captivity. So that basically means he's writing this about 800-ish years before Christ is actually born. And he's a pretty renowned prophet. There's some stories of him and Hezekiah, where Hezekiah goes to him. So it's not, he wasn't one of the, the outcast prophets. People, people renowned him that he, he was a prophet of the Lord. Um, and he basically is saying in this verse, uh, you know, hey guys, how's it going? You know, uh, this whole religious thing that we do, this Judaism um, where we can't set up any idols that look like our God, and we can only have this one God, and and like that's our whole thing. Where you know we only believe in one God, and we can't. There's no idols to Him. We just have the the tabernacle and everything. Well, uh, after Assyria gets done destroying the northern kingdom, there's going to be a child who's going to be born of a virgin, and we're going to call him God, like mighty God, a child. And I, in reading this and reading and reading some commentaries on this, I haven't been able to figure out how Israel is supposed to react to this. Um, this this child that's going to be born to them, who's going to be God. Um, and just in case you're wondering, this isn't one of those fun Hebrew name titles where um, somebody changes their name to kind of have the meaning of what they're doing. So like Gideon's name gets changed to Jerubbabel which basically means, you know, like, oh, let, let Baal fight with him. I don't want to deal with him. And it's not something like that. This is more of a title, which he would have been known. And it's in this string of other titles that pretty much distinctly re- refer to God. I'll, uh, I'll put it this way to be a, a little bit, to, to make the thought a little different. Um, there's, a, there's a really old theologian named Francis Turretin, and he claims that there's four ways that we can know that Christ is truly God because um, they're, they're things that he possesses that he shares with God. And so these are the names of God, the attributes of God, the works of God, and the worship due to God. And so in Isaiah 9, 6, we explicitly get three out of these four. So we see in mighty God, the name of God that's only used elsewhere, 
referring to God. Um, it occurs actually in Isaiah 10, referring to God the Father himself. We see eternal Father, which as being both a name of God is also an expression of God's eternality. And so it shares in that attribute of God with him. In Wonderful Counselor, I uh, looked into this a little bit, and another way that this could be understood is as miraculous advisor. And advisor mostly linked together with a king's advisor or a military advisor, which I think the rest of this passage speaks about where the rule of God is going to come upon his people and he's going to restore them and have dominion over the land. Similarly with having, you know, prince of peace that has to deal with having this rule. So he's going to be an advisor and he's going to be miraculous. And this miraculous uh, is used 43 of its times, which is 90% of the times it's used. It's used to describe God's miraculous works that he does for his people. So the exodus, we see the bringing them back from exile eventually. These are all things that God does that are miraculous to save his people throughout scripture. And so inherently in being this wonderful counselor is this guy who does God's works. He's advisor to the king. He does the work of the king, which are miraculous. So these three are all very, these names, attributes, and works are all very explicit in the text. And then implicitly from having all these names, from being the prince of peace, he is the one who's worthy of worship as well. And I bring these things up because to us it seems simple that a child is born, a son is given. But passages like 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 make it very clear that these prophets who are speaking have no idea to what they were talking about. They asked about the salvation to come, but they were denied to know the time or the details of it. Which we have been fully made aware. We know what the incarnation is. We know that Christ came to be with his people. We know that he's the only true son of God through the glorious gospel of Jesus. And it's because of this that we, that we know these things, that we have these prophecies, that I'm going to venture to say the incarnation is the singular most important event in redemptive history. Now, you know, the Lord of glory dying on the cross to, to save sinners is a really close second. Um, but here's why I think the incarnation stands out. Without the incarnation, Christianity doesn't exist. Hopefully, we'd all still be good practicing Jewish people or perhaps Jewish proselytes, but Christianity can't exist without the incarnation. And that's why this is so important, because we can look back now at Isaiah 9, and we can see how people are rejoicing from being saved and as Christians, we can look at the child being born and the son being given and see how this speaks of this two natures of Christ, how he's perfectly God and man at the same time. But can you imagine what Isaiah was asking about this? It says a child's going to be born, you're going to call him mighty God, and Isaiah's sitting there writing down his scroll and going, what? What was that? It's just, it, it's confounding to think about. Better yet, can you imagine how Isaiah looked when he got to heaven and got to understand what it was he was prophesying about? Or more rather, who he was prophesying about? I 
to a much, much, much smaller degree. Um, I can kind of imagine that kind of, that kind of like joy and ecstatic nature that Isaiah must have had when he got to heaven and was like, it's you. You're the, you're the child that I was prophesying about. Um, to a much smaller reaction, uh, I was watching Spider-Man this week, and um, it's that, that consummating feeling of, I'm like, I know this is going to be a really good movie, but then when I go and see it, and it's just so much greater than I could imagine, that I, I come home and immediately talk to my wife for like an hour and a half about how great this movie was. That's such a smaller picture than what Isaiah got when he came to heaven and realized what he was doing. And another, another way is the, that I've, I've been trying to play this, guess what Lydia got me for Christmas? Because there's just been this box sitting in our apartment for almost a month, and I have no idea what it is. Is it a bowling ball? Is it a speedboat? Not a clue. But I know that when Christmas Day comes and I finally get it, it's going to be great. And this is how I like to imagine Isaiah feeling when he found out about the incarnation, about the child being born, how he's going to meet God and man, because he is. He can be called mighty God because he is God. And that makes the incarnation so much sweeter to know. But it's easy for us Christians to get kind of bummed out about that, right? There's this great thing about the incarnation, but also this sadness that we have because we live some 2,000 years after this awesome moment in history where God became man to save his people. And we look at it and go, okay, well, that's, that's great. That happened long ago. We can read about it in the Bible. But what's there for us? What do we have? And this is the thought that I have on that that in, a Libra, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it reads that faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. And so what we have now is faith in Christ, and that's for our life and salvation. But we have also faith in his life, death, and resurrection, and importantly, his return. This is the reason that we sing songs like Joy to the World, that's not a Christmas song. Isaac Watts didn't write that song based off of Luke 2. He wrote that based off of Psalm 98. It's a song about the coming of the king. It's a song about the final rule and restoration of all things. And that's where I have to look back at myself and ask, am I as excited for Christ to return as I am to see Spider-Man? or the next Marvel movie, or to get Christmas presents, or to get to the next checkpoint in my career, my housing situation, my club that I'm involved with, the hobby that I do, the sports that I like, whatever it may be, am I so confident in the reality that Christ will return to gather his people in glory, that I'm overcome with emotions greater than what I can experience in a movie theater with a few hundred somebodies who, have, who happen to have the same interests as me? Do I understand that my faith is a reality of what I'm hoping for? If you're, if you're listening to this today and um, you, you know, can't call yourself a Christian, wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, then all I can tell you is 
that as crazy as this may all sound, God becoming man, it's all completely true. And 2,000 years ago, the God who created the earth and everything in it became man so he could pay the debt that men owed for sin to make spiritually dead men come to life. And because of that, all men have the opportunity to, all, all humans, that is, have the opportunity to be saved by believing in him. And can celebrate this Christmas season as a day where we both rejoice that the Savior was born to us and was coming again, is coming again. If you're a Christian and you're listening today, then I encourage you to think about what I just spoke about. Does your faith make you live in the reality of what you can't yet see? Are you confidently waiting for something you know is going to happen? Or as Isaiah would put it, are you still a people walking in darkness? Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that this word would be a catalyst to just bring energy and power back into the life of believers. Um, while we can get so bogged down in the Christmas season and wondering what it's, you know, how are we going to get everything wrapped? How are we going to get here? How are we going to deal with our families? I pray that you would help us to just understand that the, the incarnation, the life death, rather, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reason why we're here. That God became man so that we, he could do what we can't. That the culmination of, of time and prophecy is a child in a manger. And that that child is coming back as king to rule and reign for all of time. I pray that you would help us to think about this, to keep this in our hearts, to have that joy, to have that confident reality of what's to come, to eagerly await the coming day when Christ returns, and that we can enjoy our time with family, we can enjoy our presence, because we know that is a fraction of the joy that is set before us. I pray all this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen.